Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Deanna Minnick is one of the most well-respected PhDs in the field of functional medicine. Her doctoral PhD research focused on essential fatty acid absorption and metabolism, and her Master of Science degree allowed her to explore the health benefits of the colorful plant-based carotenoids. Yes, color. Color is a huge part of her pioneering work, and we're going to spend much of our time today talking about how we can think in color, eat in color, and live in color. It is a fascinating conversation. Deanna, welcome. It is such an honor to have you here. I've heard so many incredible things about you from so many people I respect in functional medicine, so it's about time. Welcome. Wow. Well, thank you so much. Again, it's really a delight. It's an honor. And I'm excited for this exploratory conversation about color. So color, you have such a fascinating philosophy, and it's all grounded in color. You say think in color, eat in color, and live in color. So can you summarize your philosophy and then go one by one and elaborate on thinking, eating, and living, and what you mean by all of this. Oh, wow. (laughs) There's a lot there. Uh, So let me just first start on a personal note of how I got to color, because I, I think everybody has a journey into their health and healing. And how did I even get to color from being a scientist? When I was in graduate school, I started studying carotenoids are plant pigments. And so we see them in nature. We see them when the leaves turn color in the fall. We Sometimes we don't even see them, but they're there. They're pigments and they're very protective for the body. We're learning lots about them. So that's kind of like my science story. That got me turned on in, I would say the mid nineties, I started looking into beta carotene, astaxanthin, lycopene, And at that time, these weren't really well recognized. Now we know about them and we know how to optimize them in food. And they're being looked at in different ways beyond their antioxidant potential. So that's the science story. The more spiritual, personal message around color is that I had a number of my own health issues that related to my reproductive system. So I had a blocked fallopian tube on the left side. I had endometriosis, a lot of like female health issues that I wasn't resolving through the standard, whether it was functional medicine, I was getting massage, I was getting chiropractic acupuncture. I mean, you name it. I was opening up all of those healing doors and seeing incremental changes, but not really having the overhaul I was looking for. And the embarrassing point about that was that I was teaching women's health and all the while had a lot of these issues. Well, one of the things that happened to me is when I would start to feel emotional, I began painting. And when I would paint, I would need to paint. It was almost like a requirement, almost like a nutrient requirement. I needed to paint bright, vivid colors. So I would get on the ground with these huge canvases and I would just start painting these swirls. And I began seeing people as colors. I'd meet somebody and think, oh, that person's so blue or... They need some orange in their lives. Colors came into my life in a different way beyond the science sphere. So I wanted to mention that because I think that it's relevant and it's what kept my my curiosity and interest peaked in this whole science of color. How did color become my healer? How did it become my teacher? Why do I emphasize it? And really bridging together the personal, artistic, spiritual, psychological connection with that that is practical, food-based, science-tested, and evidence-based. So I would say we start from that place, right? It's really looking at that personal and physiological aspect. All right, so think in color, eat in color, live in color. Why do I yeah. say these Yeah, that, those are big. I know it's a big question, but there's so much. I know you have so much to say about it, so let, let's go. I'm going to do very little talking and a lot of listening, yeah, like, like so, I typically okay. do, but... <laughs> So based on my experience and what I was seeing in the science, I realized that there was a color code. In other words, we kind of look at these colors of of plant foods and we say, oh, this is great. They're really rich in antioxidants. They're rich in these carotenoids or flavonoids or whatever it is. As a scientist, when I started looking at these studies, I realized that there was a pattern. 
So red seemed to be connected to certain compounds, which were connected to certain functions in the body. Orange had this clustering of activity around reproductive health. Yellow, we, as I started to look at that, looking at fibers and different starchy vegetables being yellow or even lemon and bioflavonoids, seeing that there could be a digestive component. Green, as I got into that, I was thinking, oh my gosh, this is like all the heart. This is cardiovascular. This is detoxification. I began to see this color code, which led me on this path of not just looking at the colors based on the science, but then also the traditional and psychological approaches to color. And we might think of that through the chakra system, right? And so I was also trained in yoga. I was trained in Eastern thought and philosophy. And I was reflecting on how maybe the ancients were onto something and then science began to put a bit more flesh onto this whole aspect of color and why it is so therapeutic. My research, being a PhD nutritionist, I mean, I'm really focused on food. And so that's where I started. I figured I need an operating system. I need a structure for these colors. Why is it just eat the rainbow? And as I wrote, I, I have a, a scientific paper in the Journal of Nutrition and Metabolism where I unveil this color code philosophy and principle based on what I was seeing in the science. So let's go through each of the colors because I think I can get through the thinking, the living, and the eating as we go color by color. First of all, let me ask you, what is your favorite color? What what are you most drawn to? Blue. I knew it. Well, I'm wearing <laughs> blue. I have blue eyes. It's a good, as you get older, you try to, what colors do I look good in? Well, I look better in blue than I do in black or white. I'm, I'm a little bit more paler skin. So like, that's how I got, that's how I arrived at blue. Okay. And what color are you least attracted to want to wear or not be surrounded in? I, I don't think I get look good in yellow. I don't really wear yellow. But you tell me, we're seeing each other on Skype. What, what am I doing well, wrong with you know, my colors? Okay, <laughs> color is personal. Color is, I definitely knew the blue. So let's walk through and we'll address your blue <laughs> and your yellow as we go. <laughs> All right, so first we start with red. Red has a certain nanometers of light. It has a certain frequency. Each of these colors have their own signature, right? Just if we think of physics. So when we look at the psychology of red, it's an urgent, emergent color. It, it evokes a reaction. So when you look at the science and the psychology of red, people that are drawn to red or might wear red, there could be an evoking of anger, but also a passion, a vigor. If we think of a stop sign or a stop light, it's in red. There, there's a reason for that. It's when I think of red, I think of the adrenal glands. I think of fight or flight, I'm thinking survival. When we translate that over into food, what we see is that a lot of those red pigments are connected into compounds that have anti-inflammatory and healing benefit for the immune system, which makes sense because we use red to calm the red in the body. Now, keep in mind that as I go through these colors, it's not like they're in tight boxes where no blue-purple food could ever have that effect. It's just that the preponderance of patterns that I see, there's a clustering of these effects. So if we want more energy, we want more vigor to surround ourselves in red, to protect the body with respect to reducing inflammation and bolstering the immune system, red foods to be thinking about strawberries, to be thinking about raspberries. But let's also consider things like tomatoes, where some people respond negatively and have an inflammatory reaction to some of these red foods as well. So red is a little bit, each of these colors has their balance. So for some people, more red would be, you know, it's like, no, I need less red. We even think about red meat and the connotation that people have around red meat. It's very, it's earthy, it's grounding. There, there are many energetic principles that tie into this. But in general, if we are thinking of living a red life or how do we bring more red into our environment, this is really sparking a reaction of us. It's causing us to wake up whether that's in kind of aggressive sense or just more of a, a passionate, heartfelt sense. So that's my feeling on red. 
it reminds me of a couple of things come to mind. I'm thinking about feng shui. I'm thinking about traditional Chinese medicine. I'm thinking of Ayurveda. I'm thinking of all these, you know, different modalities, if you will, how like how color plays a role. So how does this, you know, if I go back to like thinking, eating and living, how do they all fit together? And and how do we make sense of this? And maybe like provide that. I love that example. As, and like maybe yeah. another. And I'm thinking, let's go through the other colors too, because then I think we fit into the the larger profile of how people could take this into their daily life, right? Because there might be a reason to bring a color into one's environment in the way of food that actually does change their life, that does change their thought process. And I have a whole program called Whole Detox where every three days we move through a different color. They start eating those colors. And what inevitably happens is they start to form an awareness around those colors where they begin to wear those colors. They see those colors in their environment. And that triggers a whole cascade of how we think. So that's just red. Red, again, is, is that sense of urgency. Now, orange is a bit is a bit like red because it's warm. It's inviting. It's playful. It's emotional. Some people would consider it more of a feminine color. It has a connotation with sensuality. And if we look at the connection in nature, when guppies are ready to mate, or even flamingos or certain birds, their plumage forms more of this orange color. So the carotenoids come into play. These fat-soluble compounds, which are protective and are connected to hormones. So there are some animal studies in which they show that blood levels of beta carotene and beta carotene is one of those very important compounds that are found in orange foods like carrots that beta carotene in the blood correlates with blood levels of progesterone so there might be a role here in ovulation and even the ovary contains different carotenoids which we typically associate with orange so oranges, and there are many other studies looking at orange and reproductive health, eating oranges, reducing the risk of endometriosis, and just seeing that connection in the literature, more of an association. So if we need more orange, and it's interesting because as I was going through my reproductive health issues, orange was the one color that I did not want to wear. Orange and pink, those were colors I would remove myself from them in my everyday, but yet I would paint them on my canvas. They were very healing for me. Now, yellow is interesting because you mentioned that yellow would be the color that you're least inclined towards, whether it's wearing it or being surrounded in it. There was a study in Manchester, uh, England, some years ago in which they asked people what their favorite colors were, and then they assessed their mood state. And what they found was that yellow, the typical bright, happy-faced yellow that we would think of, was actually connected with happiness. It was connected with a feeling of being uplifted, a happy mood. People that chose yellow tended to be less depressed or anxious. They tended to have a normal, healthy mood. And they even did this with children. And certain children reported certain things about that color yellow, like it reminded them of their birthday. It was a positive color. And so when we think of yellow, we might think of the sun, we might think of shining bright. And when I think of yellow, I think of the digestive system. I do think of the different starches, fibers. And I also think of burnout. If we're thinking of yellow as the sun and burning bright and radiant, let's go to the other spectrum of that, the other side of that, which is where we can let that fire element take us. We're eating a lot of yellow foods these days. They're processed yellow foods. They're not the whole variety of squashes and lemons and ginger and pineapple. And as I talk about in my scientific article, some of these foods actually have catalytic properties in the body. So they help with digestive function. If we think of pineapple as an example, pineapple contains certain enzymes that helps to break down food. And so we've got that property with yellow. Yes, it burns bright. It's transformative, but in the right amounts. So maybe usually I have a quiz that people do within one of my books, Whole Detox, and 80% of people come up too high, too excessive in yellow. And so when you say that you want to move away from yellow, I, I kind of interpret that as 
He's probably living a pretty stressed life. He could be pretty burnt out. And <laughs> he needs more replenishment. He needs more of the cooling blue, which we'll get into the brain foods in blue in a sec. But that's whenever people kind of shy away from yellow, I'm thinking, ah, it's been too bright. Well, to, to me, it was purely vanity. I just don't look at in yellow, but I like yellow foods. I like bananas. Sorry, Dr. Gundry. I like good French fries every once in a while. I, I like I like all those things. It's just it was purely that's my it was purely vanity. I don't look at it in yellow, so I don't really wear it. But point taken. <laughs> and no, I'm definitely stressed and have a lot on my plate. And that's just it's, it comes with the territory of being a, a, a founder. So it's true. It's true. And well, in any way, the, the system of yellow, it's one that we need to be aware of because one of the first things to go is our digestive function when we're stressed. And so this is the work-life balance element. It's yellow. And, and keep in mind, I'm drawing from Ayurvedic traditions. I'm drawing from the fire element where traditions look more elementally. So we're talking the fire element here. Sure. We're moving to green. Green is the heart. Green is like, even if you look at a leaf and you look at a piece of kale or a leaf of spinach, you see almost the cardiovascular system. You see vasculature. And what we know about greens is that they contain a number of different cardiovascular type of ingredients or actives, things like vitamin K1, phyloquinone, which is important for blood clotting. That's how it got its name, vitamin K, coagulation in German. We also have folates, which are in these leafy greens. We have um, a, a whole number of binding agents and different fibers, methylating agents that are helpful for lowering homocysteine. So green is clarifying, purifying, it's expanding. It, it's keeping those blood vessels open wide with nitrates, the healthy dietary nitrates that convert in the body to nitric oxide and cause expansion of the blood vessels. So green is a nature color. It's the color of healers. It's the color, usually when I'm giving a lecture to an audience and I ask the group, what is their favorite color? Green is up there high in the, green and blue are top. Green, blue, and purple actually. And very few people like the warming colors, right? I mean, it's really that hue of green, healing, nurturing, being in a forest. We know of the science of forest bathing and how important it is for us to have those chemicals in the air. So I have a personal question on green. So I do like green. I eat a lot of vegetables. Our, our listeners are probably like sick of me referencing this story, but I'll just reference it anyway. I had ridiculously high homocysteine. Hmm. So 63. Oh my goodness. Exactly. Everyone. That so, is ridiculously high. <laughs> so, so my doctor is Frank Lipman and we, so I'll give you the segue. So I, my, I'm 46. My father died of heart disease in the mid forties. And then it, like, this is like four or five years ago, we wanted to get like a little bit more serious around testing beyond like cholesterol and blood pressure. And so it came back and it was 63. And for those listening who have, haven't heard the story, it should be under 15 levels that high are linked to catastrophic clotting in terms of aneurysm, pulmonary embolisms, blood clot. It's like bad. And it's like a J curve with like risk. And so Lipman and I have the MTHFR double C677T gene. So through supplements and this like developed my passion for supplements and eventually us launching a supplement line and testing and everything. I got it from 63 to 12. Fantastic. And yeah. what time frame? It went from 63 to 23 in about a month and then 12 a couple months later and we've like dialed it in and changed some things and i we're trying to get it lower but it's like fine like it, it's fine and i also have learned to live with like hey if this is like the one thing that's a little off i'll be fine everything else is fine everything else checks out i'm, I'm great health so like a pretty clean diet i eat a lot of vegetables but i'm curious my question to you my very personal question one for everyone listening get your homocysteine checked i think it's like such an important marker that like goes under the radar for so many doctors how could I incorporate knowing my issue there and I've got it under control and I eat a lot of green leafy vegetables? So is there anything else that I should be doing with the color green? Because you, you mentioned homocysteine and knowing I, I, every functional medicine doctor I talk to and I tell the story, they're like, holy cow, 63. Like that's what, I'm six foot seven. So I'm like, maybe like with yeah. the extra height, I got the extra homocysteine. What else should I be doing? I think 
think you're on it. So when okay. I think of homocysteine and really high levels, I think of protecting your vasculature, right? Because homocysteine is very damaging for the blood vessels. So anything you can do to have healthy blood vessels, which would mean nitrates. So nitrates are found in greens. They're also found in beets. They're found in beet greens. I would also be amping up, well, all of these high nitrate foods, celery, chervil, also arugula is high in, in nitrates. Like I would make sure that I'm getting that on a daily basis. But anytime you're getting greens, you're getting folates. But it's not just folates that we need to reduce homocysteine. We need the whole complex of B vitamins. We need B6. We need B12. I'd be looking at your folate cycle, your your whole methylation cycle, and also your transsulfuration cycle. There are three cycles that kind of work together. So I'd be looking at your glutathione. I'd be looking at your detoxification pathways to be sure that things are moving okay there. And that's where the greens come in again. So fiber, I think fiber um, is very sexy. It's coming back in different ways. We are looking at the different signaling aspects of fiber. It's not just roughage and eliminating properly and getting rid of functional constipation. We are now looking at how fiber in the gut might be helping your blood vessels, might be getting out to the cardiovascular network a little bit more. So I'd be thinking, you're do it sounds like you're doing a good job. I'm, I'm doing all those things. Yeah, I take B6, glutathione, all those things you mentioned I take and I eat. I, I should have more beets, but I'm doing all those things. But I, I'd be remiss not to ask. And it's a good it's a good PSA for everyone, a good reminder. Get your homocysteine checked because I'm convinced a lot of people have issues. They don't know it. So, Yeah, and I think for somebody like you, you need to definitely keep your stress in check. Do you have a stress ball in your hand? One yeah. of those? I love that, right? So <laughs> there you go. It's really important because anything you can do to stay in the zone and be in that steady eddy place of the parasympathetic is really important for you. You're all about the heart. Anything you can do in life that cultivates that psychological as well as physiological imprint and they go hand in hand. I love the stress ball. Like someone gave us this, Colleen and I, my wife who I work with, I just love it. It's like you just, it, it's one of those little things that throughout the day, it's just like, I'm a huge fan, so... I think it's great. I mean, again, anything. A colleague of mine had on her screen, her computer screen, a little sticker that said blink, which just reminded her in the day-to-day, -day, in the flow, in the flux, it's like, no, take a moment to like blink, take a breath, and you could put breathe on your computer, whatever it is, a stress ball, all of that. So, the, so enough the about me and homocysteine. Sorry, we can move on. Okay, no, I, I think it's relevant because people want to see how this plays out. And we're, we're going to get into that too, as to how people can bring the rainbow into their everyday. The last color I'll mention is blue-purple. So when I, and, and you and I could have just had a conversation on blue-purple in the brain, and we could have talked for an hour. I, I could uh, have talked for a couple of hours on that. There is a wealth of study data and, and findings around eating blue-purple foods, and when I say blue-purple, I mean blueberries, I mean Concord grape juice even, blackberries, raisins, purple potatoes instead of yellow potatoes, purple carrots, which are two to three times more nutrient-dense than orange carrots. So what makes these purple vegetables and fruits so important? It's those proanthocyanidins. It's in the skin what you're really after is the skin, wherever it's purple, because those compounds are protective. And nature gives us very little of these purple compounds. So when we see them, we need to take them. So if we're at the store and we have a choice between purple broccoli or green broccoli, and in Seattle, where I live, we get that option. Like we get purple broccoli, we get purple kale, we get all these purple varieties of food. You always take the purple because it's rare and it's almost like you've just enhanced your nutrient density just by choosing a food that is normally one color, but now it's in a purple variety. And purple gets into the brain. This is the thing with these colorful compounds. They're not just antioxidants. That's a real 1990s way to look at colors in food. The, the newer science of color is that they're functional. They are functional in the way of that they actually locate in certain parts of the body and have functional roles. In other words, if you stopped eating blue-purple foods, you would no longer have the integration of those pigments into certain parts of the brain that are responsible for learning and memory. 
And there was a survey that was done some years ago by Neutralite. And what they found was that 88% of Americans that were surveyed did not meet their blue purple serving for the day. So that's problematic. You know, and many people would say that we live in the age of the brain and behavior, whether it's kids and attentional deficit disorder, hyperactivity disorders, autism, or we look at the other end of the spectrum, cognitive issues, dementia, even something like brain fog. I mean, we really need to be looking at the goal of bringing in more blue purple because blue purple foods have not only enhanced the memories or helped with learning for people who were deficient, but even in healthy people. I think that's what your listeners need to hear is that even if you have a ceiling of where you feel like, hey, I'm pretty well off cognitively. Well, in these studies over and over, what we see is that we can actually boost and optimize and not just optimize cognition and learning and memory, but also mood. It's a two prong approach with these blue purple foods. So you mentioned mood and I have to ask since we're in COVID, anxiety, stress, sleep, huge issues so many people are facing and I, I get it. It's a tough time right now for many people. How should we be thinking about color and what are some imminent lifestyle changes we should make if we are running a bit high in anxiety, stress and having issues sleeping like tens of millions of people right now? Yeah, no, it's an excellent question. And I had the opportunity to present to congressional staff last year in July about that very thing. The different congressional districts were asking the question, what could we do? What is the connection between food and mood? And most people think of the health benefits reducing the risk of chronic disease, but they don't always associate the fact that food and your food choices will determine your mood state. Your mood state will then determine your behavior and your subsequent actions that will lead to you either having an uptick and continuing that cycle or having a, a down a downplay of that, a downturn. So what can people do? One of the, the easiest things that I like to do is just to tell people to focus on eating the rainbow. And I've developed a food tracker, a color tracker for kids as well as for families. It's almost like food bingo, right? So imagine that you've got like the days of the week and all the different colored circles that follow underneath each one. And so I even ha I have all the different colors that I just discussed. I also have white. I have brown because we have to be thinking about healthy brown foods and healthy white foods. I grew up with a mother who used to say, the whiter the bread, the quicker you're dead. So there are, obviously are a lot of like white not so healthy foods and brown not so healthy foods. But we need to, again, encourage kids to be thinking of like the broad spectrum. And it's fun. I mean, I've had people work with this activity. So I, I think you have to gamify eating colors. And when you gamify things, you take yourself out of the analysis paralysis, where food becomes laborious, it becomes stressful, it becomes taxing, because how do I get to the grocery store when I'm in quarantine? So you find ways to engage the family. And I think that with COVID, one of the things that I've seen is that either people got more creative because they were at home and they had the time to make food and they had the time to explore, or they went into another direction of eating more processed foods for comfort, right? And everything in between, whether the healthy people got healthier, the healthy people got less healthy because they were moving towards comfort, or the unhealthy people got healthier or they got more unhealthy, right? So all of these different, or they stayed the same. Like me, I feel like I kind of stayed the same because I've always been eating these really good meals and really posting those and showing people like, hey, your plate is like a palette, make it colorful. And so I, I do think we can have a significant impact on our mood state. And that's really what we all need to be thinking about right now, because even after COVID, the mental health concerns are going to persist for some time. Yes. 100% agree. It's a huge issue and it's not going away. When you started to mention brown and white, I couldn't help but think, oh, like, what's what's your favorite color? If you were to go through the rainbow, color by color, and pick your favorite food for each color, or food we should be having more of for each color, could we go through that exercise? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So when I, and of course, that it has to be personalized and I'm just giving you favorites. Yes. And that's like a mother saying I have a favorite child and that's not necessarily the case, but I'll go with the heavy hitters. So when I think of red, 
I actually love pomegranate arils. If people can get more pomegranate, pomegranate serves multiple roles and it has so many different actives and it's not something that people commonly do. And I talk about variety. People who have more dietary variety tend to be better nourished and have better nutrient status. So go with, I'm going to go with foods that maybe aren't always um, in our dietary repertoire. So I would say pomegranate. For orange, well, gosh, two came to mind. I'm going to go with, um, I'm not going to pick something too esoteric here, but even if we just went with carrots, right? If we can just get a bunch of carrots, because what we get with carrots are also the carrot tops many times. And so we can be using that that's multifunctional. Keep your skin on your carrots. Eat the skin, just wash it. It has to be steamed. We need fat in order to optimize the, the carotenoids from carrots. And one of the things I love about carrots too and the different carotenoids is that they make your skin better. They make your skin better hydrated. People ask me all the time, like, what kind of like products do I use? And I say, I, I almost use none. I'm eating a lot of these plant foods, which then embeds into my skin and is protective. For yellow, I would say lemon. If we could start the day with a little bit of just squeezing lemon juice into warm water, but also lemon zest, keep in mind that the phytonutrients are concentrated in the skin or in the rind. And many times we toss that part of the plant away. And with lemon, we can get a little bit of lemon zest and we can bring that in. And all those bioflavonoids, those essential oils, so incredible. And most people don't know this, but if you have green tea and you squeeze lemon into the tea, you can potentiate the catechins and make the catechins actually work better in your body. So adding a little bit, and let, and let me just mention something about, so onto green. I, I wanna mention green tea actually, because tea is very similar and rivals the antioxidant potential of many fruits and vegetables. There was a study on that, showing that green and black teas, depending on their variety, could have as much as or even greater amounts of antioxidants than something like a serving of vegetables, certain types of vegetables. Yeah. Wow. And so during this time of COVID, it's not always having to have things that are fresh or even frozen or canned, but tea. Tea is, I mean, look at all the cultures that live the longest. What are they punctuating their day with? They're drinking tea throughout the day, a variety of tea. So the only thing we have to note there is just make sure you have good quality, that you don't have plastic tea bags, because then you get all of that, that you don't have gluten in the string, you don't have a staple in the bag. It's pure tea whenever you can, but you can get a substantial amount of these protective phytonutrients just from tea. So that's green. I'll go with green tea because there are so many studies, but don't limit yourself just to green tea. And then when it comes to blue-purple, my favorite there just keep it simple. Blueberries, frozen blueberries do not lead to a reduction in those precious purple pigments. Get small wild berries, even at Trader Joe's, they have like the, the berries from Montreal and Quebec. You can get, keep in mind that smaller when it comes to plants is usually better because mm. things are more concentrated. So microgreens instead of the large collared leaf, right? that that is going to give you greater nutrient density. So the skins, the variety, the, the size of the food also makes a difference. And then brown, that is a good question. What do I have that's brown in my fridge? Or even- I have a favorite. What, what is yours? I'll, I'll make a joke, Dr. Gundry will not approve, but refried beans. Ah. Refried pinto beans, black beans, but like that's been a shelf stable. You make sure that none of the bad oils are in there. That's a great, that's a family favorite during COVID in the walk-up household. <laughs> <laughs> refried beans. Yeah. So you just have to pay attention to the oils that yes. are usually accompanying the refried beans and also the can, yep. thinking about liners and things like that. But even whole beans, all the different beans. And again, cultures that live longest tend to have a greater consumption of legumes. And um, a student and I wrote an article on anti, you keep bringing up Dr. Gundry, so I want to speak to him. <laughs> I, I, lo I love Dr. Gundry, he's a friend. I just, <laughs> I like having fun with, like, I know he's no, very anti-lectin, but. It's very important. 
one to consider because yeah. I'm a fruit and veggie tea and I'm a plant person, right? So one of the first things that people say to me is, but Deanna, what about Dr. Gundry's work? He says that we can't be eating these things. And so I took it upon uh, myself together with a student and we went into the literature to see if lectins, phytates, goitrogens, we looked at tannins, we looked at all of these compounds including his favorite lectins, just to see, are these truly, is there science to support that these are problematic? And what we found was quite a long article. So I'll just summarize for everybody. Here's the takeaway. Yes, there can be some personalized responses from an immune perspective. I typically think it's not the food, it's the person. We need to be, those plant compounds are signaling that there's something off in our bodies. Right. And if we were to prepare those foods in traditional ways through soaking and sprouting and germination and cooking, a lot of these beans need cooking in order to get those nutrients. Right. We don't tend to see these same issues. He loves the pressure cooker. So, yeah, he <laughs> loves the pressure cooker. But look, I, I, he there's so many people who struggle with autoimmune who they, they take out lectins and they just have remarkable recoveries. So there, there is something to be said for it but like you said it, we're all individuals we're all unique it's hard to generalize but you know for the sake of the podcast we have to generalize sometimes so what other colors we, we got brown what about chocolate what about chocolate chocolate oh well before we went on to the podcast you were mentioning what are your favorite flavonoid containing foods and I would say if I have an emotional connection to a food, if I was stranded on a desert island and I did not have cacao or cocoa, I would be a mess. I, I, <laughs> I love my cocoa. I love my cacao. And that's one of those foods that gives me a different sensation. And I'm even going to say coffee. Coffee's not bad for, I started drinking coffee when I was in my forties. I mean, just like three years ago, I started drinking coffee and it was only because of the literature. I started realizing that the literature on liver, and if you look at hepatotoxicity, what caffeine and coffee does is it fuels a lot of those detoxification pathways forward. So some people do coffee in the way that doesn't benefit them because they drink coffee without, the protein will help to fuel those necessary detox reactions all the way through and get them out of the body. But if we just have coffee in an empty stomach, the chances of us then getting that frenetic, anxious feeling might be greater. There are certain enzymes that people have, just like you have methylation um, enzymes that aren't as efficient. There can be caffeine detoxifying enzymes that aren't as efficient or are very efficient. And that has to be taken into consideration too. That was seen in some of the studies with people with heart attacks, how if they had the gene that made them a fast metabolizer of caffeine, they fared pretty well and had a protective effect of the caffeine. But for those who are slow metabolizers where caffeine sits around in the body for a longer time, and I always say that's why it's like in detox, you have something to fuel phase one like caffeine, but then you need protein to like conjugate it, move it out and eliminate it from the body. So am I correct in assuming that if you're a fast metabolizer of caffeine, you're probably not as affected Someone, I, I, music to my ears that coffee is on your quote unquote approved list because I love black coffee. I love a good espresso. I don't do this anymore, but I could have a, an espresso or a coffee at 7 p.m. or 8 p.m. at night and still go to sleep. I never get jittery. I just, I, I love the taste of it. I don't have like, I, I have a double, a double espresso in the morning and another coffee and an espresso in the afternoon and that's it. I used to be able to drink a lot more and I just cut it off, but Long-winded long -winded way of saying my wife, on the other hand, if she has coffee past 1 p.m., she's like, she can't sleep. So is it safe to say that I am probably a fast metabolizer of caffeine while my wife is probably a slow metabolizer? Is that is it about the feeling and the jittery? or That's the feeling. It, it's a very simplistic way to say it, but for the sake of bucketing it and saying like, <laughs> okay, am I a fast or slow? But there could be other things that go into it too. Okay. And Knowing your background now a little bit with homocysteine, you do need to be careful with too much coffee. Yeah. Because coffee will tie into methylation. It could tax and use up some of our reserves for methylation. And there's some literature on that. 
So you don't want to overdo it. What you're getting at, though, is really good, which is you need to personalize it. You need to be aware of how your body responds to it. Are you using it as a crutch to get through the day? Because some people have just some concerns about adrenal insufficiency and overtaxing the adrenals. And I think coffee and chocolate and sugar, these things could mask where you're really at. So if you're not in tune with your body and you're doing these things without awareness, not so good. But it sounds like you have a higher level of awareness, but I would say you need to be, keep an eye on your homocysteine. Yes, I agreed. I definitely have a higher level of awareness now, but some days with our, our two little ones and sleep not so good, I definitely use coffee to get through the day, but fingers crossed, sleep issues of our one and a half year old and four year old, we're, we're, in, a, we're in a good spot. <laughs> Are there any other colors or do we cover everything? Well, the only other color I would say is, and it goes on the continuum of blue-purple, right? There's also black. And if we think of black rice, this is where the pigment is so deep and it's so deeply hued. That's what we want. That that usually denotes more nutrient density. Just like if you have a green, like uh, leafy greens, usually the darker the color the the better off you are. Not always, but I wanted to bring up black as part of that blue purple black continuum because blackberries i wish that people would study blackberries because if i had to be on a desert island and somebody said deanna i'm either giving you blueberries or blackberries to survive i would choose the blackberries because first of all uh, pigments also the fiber is greater in blackberries because if you were to take all those little skins and then like look at the surface area you're actually getting more fiber with blackberries The only other thing I want to mention to everybody that I think is important in this conversation of color is you mentioned people with autoimmune disease and that omitting lectins and seeing a benefit. One of the things I see in that population is that people get into food ruts and they get into food ruts because they're afraid of foods, they're intolerant, they have sensitivities, they have allergies. So one of the principles that I started to talk about is called, I just named it this, so you're not going to find it in the literature. I call it dietary micro rotation. So what does that mean? That means that instead of avoiding large amounts of food classes and categories, that we bring in really small, teeny tiny amounts. Because the way that nature works is in a pleiotropic, team-like way. Nature is about diversity confers resilience. So when we start to, I'm just thinking of somebody in particular who I worked with, a client who had an autoimmune condition, and she got herself down to just seven foods that she could have, and she had a lot of fear that you could only have like this seven to 10 foods. And so I helped her to back herself out of that way of thinking, because just think of a microbiome where you only see seven foods every day. Are you going to be building resilience and diversity through the, no way. So that's going to be counterproductive to her, her end game, which is to get healthier and have a better immune system. So what is dietary micro rotation? So there was an article that was published looking at 50 foods, 50 novel plant-based foods in seven days as a goal. So what I did is I took that paper, which was from the UK, published by Miguel Toribio Mateus, and I, I created like this gamified experience where people in one of my online communities, we tracked how many unique, diverse plant-based foods we could have in seven days. And I had people track their fruits, vegetables, herbs, spices, teas, juices, nuts, seeds, grains, anything that fell into the category of a plant without measuring it. Like, let's just qualify and just look at the actual quality of what you're eating. And uh, I think I had 122 plant-based items that were unique in in that time frame. The, The woman in our group that had the most was a woman from Australia who had 232 different unique plant-based foods in that time frame. So that's micro rotation. So if you have like a Granny Smith apple one day, don't have another Granny Smith apple the night. Don't buy the big bag of apples at the store that's all one kind. Get different varieties. Pick a Pink Lady or um, a Fuji. And I'm doing apples because in Washington state, it's like, it's all about the apples. So all these different varieties and, or even sweet potatoes or so many different kinds of sweet potatoes and yams. Don't buy just the big bag from Trader Joe's and be done with it. No, pick all the different kinds so that you get the benefits of the different phytochemicals that are in those varietals. I'm glad you brought that up. It's such an important point. 
because look, eliminating food groups entirely, I think can become, look for some people they need to, but for most people it can become dangerous. And I think it's safe to assume that most people run a little bit better with less sugar, less, less gluten, less processed food in general, but you should still have those things. Maybe just not every meal, every single day. But I, to have a you know diverse microbiome and 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 not shock your system, I, I am a big believer in the eighty twenty rule or ninety ten. But I think a hundred zero, and I, I get how some people have to do it, but for most people, not a good idea. No, and it also makes me think of that phrase: eat everything in moderation, yeah. which. I, I don't like that phrase because I don't <laughs> think about everything and I don't think about moderation, but I do like to have people think about eating variety. So in a rotational diet, like F, when you do an elimination diet and then you go back to eating foods, you know, the general idea is every three to four days, change it up. Like when I lived in Europe, I had to go to the store every, like every other day almost because things were really fresh, things were in smaller packages. So by default, I was rotating my foods. Although we tend to like certain brands for the sake of convenience, we go to the same places in the market. What I would encourage us all to do is like one novel food or a food that we haven't had in a long time every week. Like for me, just recently, I just bought a fennel bulb. Like when was the last <laughs> time I had fennel? Like it's been a long time. So I thought I need to start bringing in some of these foods and to be thinking about seasonal aspects of foods too, because then nature has embedded through the environmental signals. Now we bring those signals into our body and that confers a greater health benefit ultimately. And there's some trickling of science on that concept too. So you mentioned your, you know, Granny Smith apple, and I started to have a craving for Granny Smith apple with, you know, some crunchy organic peanut butter. I'm like, I haven't had that in so long. And so on, the, on that note, cravings. And I'm curious, what can we learn from our cravings? We all have them. We do. And I, I think cravings are great teachers. I think that they're messengers. It's kind of like when we have a symptom, it's like that part of the body is yelling loudest in order to call us into that attention, right? It's a moment of like pause. So I've done some exploration into this topic with people and also reading up on the literature. And I think that there are physical, physiological bases of cravings, just like there are emotional, mental, memory aspects of cravings. So let me just go with the chocolate one because it's one of my favorites, right? Because I've explored this for myself because typically what you hear in nutrition is, oh, that person just needs magnesium. Most people are deficient in magnesium. It's like, that is the weakest excuse for a chocolate craving because chocolate is not even that high in magnesium relative to a number of other foods. So that just doesn't play out. But I do have an activity called laddering where I have the craving of the food and I say it to a person over and over again, and they quickly give me the first thing that comes to them. And what you see is that there's something deeper usually with the food and our connection to a food right? Like with bread, what I typically see, in fact, I was just talking with my husband about this. Why does he crave bread so much? And for him, it's all about, and I said, Mark, I think it's because look at bread. It's squishy. It's comforting. It's like a hug. But there's that sense of having that in, during our upbringing. And my dad also has this thing with bread. He would see his grandmother making Swedish bread like during the holidays. And so like we have to kind of discern where we have a physical connection to a food because we actually have a nutrient need versus something that's emotional. And I think that most people have an emotional connection or that food makes us feel a certain way. Like chocolate makes me feel a certain way or coffee does too. When I have coffee, I just feel like the world is a much better place. It's like, I, oh my gosh, my neurons. I couldn't agree more. I, I couldn't agree more. The world is a much better place with coffee. I think all of our <laughs> listeners would agree. So I, I would just close there, but because that's such a high note for everyone. But in, in, in closing, I, on a, a serious note, my last question, I'm, I'm curious, are, are there any interesting studies developing science in terms of color? Like, where is the conversation on color today? What does science say or, or where do you think it's, it's going? 
That's a great question. If we look at where all color comes from, it comes from light. It comes from the sun. We're a people run by the sun. And we have this symbiotic relationship, or actually it's more of a one-way relationship with plants, whereby they harness that sun, that light, that white light, which contains all colors. And through the process of photosynthesis, gives us the energy we need. And so I think, number one, if I can just wax philosophical and then I'll get to the science, I do think that this is a calling to come into right relationship with the planet. With Plants are a divining rod. They're intelligent. There's that uh, Radio Lab podcast some time ago, Smarty Plants, and I loved it. I listened to that so many times, and I love the reference to Smarty Plants because I do think plants have this intelligence, and they're it's able to inform our bodies and our cell wiring in certain ways. And I think that's where the science is going. Look at how adaptogens have taken off. They have hormones. They have hormones like we do. So they have these cyclical structures that resemble our hormones. And so I think that it's coming into right relationship with plants. Color by itself being harnessed through that light. I think circadian rhythm is right now like incredibly, this is like everybody's talking about circadian rhythm, but really it's the cycle of light and it's our exposure to color. And so what I am seeing in the literature a little bit is that there are certain research groups that are looking at whether or not there are certain conditions like metabolic syndrome that are connected to, can they be helped by eating certain colors of food? There was a group that published some research on that. And I've been tracking those color kinds of studies, looking at the functional aspects of color. So this is the 21st century take. Back in the 20th century, in the 1990s, it was more about like, oh, antioxidants. And that's still part of it. But where we're seeing in the science that all of this is going is how can colors be functional, not just pretty on the plate, but physiological within our body systems. And I think we're going to be learning much more about what I call the color code. I mean, I, I, I'm seeing it playing out in the patterns and I'm seeing when I have people do a color focused program, their lives become more colorful. And when your life becomes more colorful, you're a happier person. And ultimately that's why we eat better. It's not just to be healthier, it's to be healthier so we can be happier. And I do think that color brings us into that realm of happiness. Amen. We'll close there. Deanna, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.